I'm Ashley Nichols. And I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. This is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on the power of political and civic engagement. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about what civic and political engagement means to them and how they're involved in their communities. And this week, um, we're kind of diving into community organizing um, much more in depth and thinking about kind of the foundational kind of values of community organizing. Yeah, I, I mean, and and the guest today said something that really kind of struck a chord with me, and I, I, I suspect with you too, which was um, it, when he's talking about apathy, right? And we've talked about apathy just a ton on the show, um, and that there's the sense that people are apathetic, and and that and and his comment was really about, well, what is that apathy stemming from? Is it really that they don't care, or is it that they don't? see you haven't created for them or sold for them that there is a space for you to be engaged in your own governance yeah absolutely and and one of the other things that i think really resonates with me about this episode in particular is just the emphasis on people power right so at the the core of organizing is really this idea that people have the power to change the world around them and providing the platforms and the tools and the strategies and the organizational structure, I guess, to just to do that, right? And that, 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 and that we, we can be a part of that and um, that everyone um, can be involved in their, their civic and political life. And so I'm, I'm super excited um, to have with us today, Kirk Noden. Right. So Kirk is a veteran community organizer who has successfully built community organizations a- across the globe, really, in Chicago, Birmingham, England, and Ohio. Kirk currently serves on the boards of the Ohio Organizing Collaborative, a statewide grassroots power organization, Policy Matters Ohio, one of the state's premier progressive think tanks, and the Safety and Justice Action Pack, which focuses on electing progressive prosecutors across the country. In his 20 years as an organizer, he's led campaigns on a variety of issues from securing fair and affordable housing to criminal justice reform to raising the wages of retail workers. Currently, Kirk directs the set of Moment uh, Aligned and Owned LLCs, including a consulting co-op, a field vendor, and a social justice taproom. So joining us today is Kirk Noden. Thanks for coming, Kirk. We're super excited today to have with us Kirk Noden. Kirk, I want to get started... uh, and we do this with everybody, but I want to get started by just, you know, inviting you to tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your work in, in Kent or Northeast Ohio more generally, but just who you are and what you're doing these days. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm, my name is Kirk Noden and I'm a longtime uh, community organizer. Um, I grew up here in uh, Northeast Ohio. I'm the son of two public school teachers. My father actually taught at Kent State University in the uh, English and um, education department and have been involved in kind of community organizing and movement work for a couple of decades. Um, Started off actually doing 
student campus organizing uh, at Kent around the uh, contract for America. Remember Newt Gingrich tried to, to um, destroy the Pell Grant program back in the, uh, back, which they've, they've tried to destroy again recently, but so I was involved in a bunch of activism around that and then some kind of on-campus organizing and then got the opportunity. Uh, well, after I graduated, um, I moved to Chicago um, where I had an older brother, found a kind of job in door-to-door neighborhood organizing, which I didn't even know there was such a career or job that like you could be paid to go out and cause trouble and, and do you know, organizing, community organizing in neighborhoods. I, so I did kind of door-to-door work for a couple of years, working on issues ranging from gang violence and community safety to library services to abandoned housing. And kind of the, that was the, kind of the beginning of the foreclosure crisis, which um, hit neighborhoods like the one that I was organizing in much earlier than the rest of the, than the, rest of the country. So I did that for a couple of years, then got the opportunity to um, start a broad-based organization in another part of Chicago, um, which is called the Albany Park Neighborhood, which is the third most diverse zip code in the country, where there was 40 different languages spoken in the schools, and built a kind of an organizing coalition that consisted of uh, churches, mosques, schools, immigrant aid associations, and labor unions. I ran that for about four years and worked on um, issues ranging from uh, immigrant rights to youth violence to uh, also did a lot of work on housing there too. Then got the opportunity to start an organization in Birmingham, not Alabama, but England and spent uh, three years building a faith and labor coalition in Birmingham, working on everything from a set of people's guarantees to the, uh, for the Olympics that were coming to uh, coming to London to improving neighborhood and community parks to police relationships with the Muslim community. So it was a, and that was a fascinating place to organize because Birmingham is so religiously diverse. I mean, the 25% of the city is Muslim and there's also black Pentecostals and Anglicans and Sikhs. And um, so that was fun. I mean, and that was primarily kind of faith and labor uh, organizing and then came back to Ohio in 2006 and started a, set of organizations, but the kind of main one being um, the Ohio Organizing Collaborative, which is a um, statewide alliance of kind of neighborhood, faith, student, and worker organizing that kind of brings together those strands of organizing um, with um, kind of also trying to support movement work like Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter or um, uh, kind of emerging movement um, moments and and then also does large scale um, independent political work. So across kind of a, a 501c3, 501c4, and a PAC. So the in 2016, the last year that I was director, we registered uh, 180,000 voters in Ohio. We knocked on 400,000 doors and did a kind of mail and text kind of layered program over top of that. So that's that's kind of my organizing resume. And then in the last three and a half years, I've uh, been working on kind of building what I would describe as movement aligned companies that both, but with the kind of goal of generating revenue for organizing and kind of progressive politics and, and to really support kind of grassroots leadership uh, to uh, kind of craft their own destiny in terms of what they, the kind of campaigns and kind of organizing that they want to see in the, in the state. So that's, that's a long winded answer about like 
who I am, what I'm, what I'm doing. Kirk, I wonder, could you tell us a little bit more about Ohio Organizing Collaborative? What prompted you to, to start this? And, and perhaps uh, what is the organization? What are some of the goals of the organization? What is it that they do to kind of meet those goals? Yeah. So I would describe kind of the Ohio Organizing Collaborative's work in kind of four buckets. Um, the first bucket is to try to support uh, community organizing in all of its forms across the state. So that would, that could mean, you know, supporting, you know, people in Cleveland who are working on transit to improve public transportation, access to transit, affordability of transit. Ohio has a, you know, uh, we're one of the worst states in the country in terms of um, public transit, public transit funding. So it could be supporting a campaign like that, or it could be, uh, um, we supported for a number of years uh, the Walmart worker organizing campaign. So we were um, supporting uh, workers in Walmart who are advocating for a $15 an hour minimum wage and for um, better benefits and so forth. So we did all kinds of uh, actions and campaigns around, around that, you know, around that, around that campaign. So, and we also did a lot of, we've done a lot of work on criminal justice reform. So really looking at a whole portfolio of, policy changes that would reduce and end mass incarceration in Ohio. So, and that, so that's kind of the first bucket is like, how do you support all of that kind of organizing across the, you know, across the state, whether it's in neighborhoods or in workplaces or in church basements or immigrant aid associations or uh, what have you. Um, And on a whole range of issues, really whatever people want to work on that kind of falls in, kind of social, racial, and economic justice categories. And then the second bucket of work is how do you accelerate and support movement work? So not everything happens through organized and planned campaigns, as we've certainly seen uh, this year with tons of people in the street around Black Lives Matter and, and calling for the country to have a reckoning with racial justice. So how do you support those organic leaders and those that movement work that that happens and how do you kind of help tie that to kind of existing organizing and long-term power building work um so that's kind of the second bucket of work the third bucket of work is building independent large-scale political programs so uh you know it yes it is both about helping get candidates elected who support the platform that you have but it's also about holding those those elected leaders accountable through the course of through the course of after you know when they get elected or when they are running the legislature or when they're governor and and to do that regular everyday people need their own political muscle to do that so we've built a voter registration program a get out the vote program that's primarily focused on moving low propensity voters which is young people people of color unmarried women in Ohio it's like how do you really um, increase the, the percentages of which those those communities turn out and vote. Uh, and then there's some uh, uh, part of that is also there's we also have a pack. So there is some work that to support specifically supports candidates that uh, the organization endorses. And then the last and final bucket is the Ohio Organizing Collaborative has a set of partnerships with um, progressive policy organizations in the state. So we work really closely with 
Policy Matters Ohio, which is an economic think tank, the Kerwin Institute, which is a race and ethnicity um, policy think tank, and the Ohio Justice and Policy Center, which is a, a think tank on criminal justice reform. So um, we have some really talented, thoughtful kind of policy experts in the state. How do you blend and align that work with on the ground grassroots organizing and political work um, so it doesn't just sit on a shelf as a very nice report? So, right, where they talk past each other. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, that's a bit, I, I, you know, I teach community organizing and, and this year I've much more intentionally thought about the ways in which community organizing and social movement work are, are working. Uh, I know last year uh, you came in and talked to my class. Um, so you're, you're, you know, you've been doing organizing work for a while um, and in various ways, right. In different types of organizing spaces, different types of organizations, what drew you to this type of work and what, I know you also said that lately you've been doing some other stuff, but what led you away from it or maybe not away from it. Maybe that's not the right language, but this has shifted your, focus? Yeah. So, I mean, what led me to it? I mean, um, well, certainly like when I was a student on at Kent, I mean, I got involved in some kind of, uh, you know, organizing and campaign work was interested in, interested in social justice. I think that came both from like, I, the, uh, I studied philosophy at Kent and also Pan-African studies. So I think I had a set of kind of professors and people who kind of encouraged me in that, in that direction. Um, and then when I, when I got, but I didn't know there was a, like a career in community organizing, like no one, I didn't know that existed until I kind of got to Chicago and then kind of stumbled onto it. And I really actually planned to do it for like a year or two and then go back to school and get another degree or a law degree or something like that. And, um, and I really got hooked to the, some of these like core principles of, of community organizing, one of which is that, um, you know, everyday people given the opportunity can do extraordinary things, um, but they need vehicles and organizations and platforms to do so. And like, what, what, what could be a better job than like getting to work for regular everyday people on the, on the problems and challenges that, that are facing their communities and the, and helping them build power to, to address those address those issues. And I think it really is, I mean, organizing too is different than um, advocacy in the sense that advocacy, you're kind of advocating on behalf of someone organizing, you're, you're creating vehicles for people to claim and wield their own power and to develop their own leadership and to have a sense of their voice in the public arena. And, and I think that's, that's, I, I've, I've really enjoyed that. And then I think I've also really enjoyed the opportunity to learn um, so much from the people that I've uh, been able to organize with. Um, and, you know, whether that's like in Chicago or, or England or here, it's like people from all, all over in so many different places who are, yeah, those relationships have been deeply, deeply rewarding. And it's also like deeply challenging work. It's not exactly easy to solve mass incarceration or, or poverty or racism in this country. You know, it's like, these are huge challenges to our communities and our democracy. And, um, you know, I think I got, I think I got really into the, how hard it challenges and pushes you in a different kind of, in a different kind of way and, and makes you grow and kind of humbles you every, 
every day that you're in the work. So that's what kind of got me into it. What, yeah, I mean, I'm still, I would still say that I'm like still in the same field. I'm just, um, I'm just working on a kind of a different piece of the puzzle, which is, you know, after running nonprofit organizations for almost two decades, I kind of found myself in a place where, you know, I kind of woke up one day and I was like, I think I've become a, you know, nonprofit executive director when that's not really what I set out to be when I got involved in organizing. I really got involved in organizing to be a part of big mass movement and fundamental structural change in this, in this country. I got involved because I wanted to see radical visionary politics. And I think I also got involved because I wanted to see, you know, people have having and building and wielding economic power. So, and I, uh, my kind of conclusion after kind of 20 years of running nonprofits was that there are some structural problems with the way the progressive movement works and is designed and, and a lot of that has to do with the way in which it's funded. And I think my kind of conclusion was like, well, you know, it's if, if we're going to kind of break through and see organizing get to scale, if we're going to see and sustain more visionary and radical politics, the movement needs to be funded not just by philanthropy and or big donors and the whims of big donors, but we really need to break through with independent resource generation efforts. And I think there's a number of ways to approach that. One way is to, to the kind of uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, like, you know, having a huge small donor membership base that sustain like, or Bernie Sanders is another example. I mean, that's kind of one path. Um, I mean, another path is to actually build companies and entities that, that, generate independent revenue that can fund organizing and candidates and, and, and start to kind of break through on that, on that. So that's the, yeah, I mean, essentially I also, I mean, I'd say quite just bluntly, I kind of got tired of doing tons of fundraising. Um, Cause I was, you know, at the end of the last year, I ran the Ohio organizing collaborative. It had an, you know, $8 million budget. It's like that meant raising money from 65 different entities to essentially get that all to add up and doing that every year. And that, you know, a lot of funding in, in philanthropic world is year to year money. So you're always spending, you know, the first three to six months of a year, just finding how to fill your budget gap and, and you're spending, you know, you land up spending all your time when you're the executive director of an organization that size, you're spending 80% of your time raising money. And I, I kind of concluded like, well, I've done this for a long enough. And there was also really dynamic younger leaders who were ready to take the organization over. So I also needed to get out of the way. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of why I transitioned into a different piece, but I still see myself fundamentally as an organizer. And I still see the work that I'm doing now and trying to build as a part of that larger ecosystem. Now, Kirk, you're kind of unique from some of the folks that we've interviewed here in that you've organized in a lot of different spaces and places, right? Chicago, Birmingham, the UK, and then in Ohio. Uh, What are some of the similarities and also differences for organizing in these different locations or or organizations? Yeah, I would say the top line on similarities is that people really are people no matter where you go. Um, And I I think there's a, we have a a false myth 
in this country about apathy that like that, you know, we have this huge problem with apathy, but I, I still think that's true. I just think we suck at organizing people and engaging them and creating vehicles for people to actually participate in a meaningful way in democracy. And I've never, it's like, whether it's like, you know, Pakistani Muslims in Birmingham or El Salvadorian refugees in Chicago or white working class people in Youngstown. It's like, I think that if people are meaningfully invited to participate in something that they see as having the potential to actually build real power and for them to have a voice in the, in the decisions that impact their lives, like many, many people will get involved and engaged in that. And I think I've seen that wherever I've been that there, that, you know, participation and engagement is not the, or people's, you know, attitude is not the pro it's, it's our, our willingness and our ability to do the hard work to engage them and to organize them. So I would say, that's kind of the same everywhere. I think what is different, I mean, it's certainly from like Ohio versus, or, or, you know, or Youngstown, Ohio versus Chicago is there, I think another piece of what we don't, that progressives talk past one another in this country is around kind of strong market cities versus weak market cities and what's happening in terms of the, the shift from an industrial economy to a quote unquote gig economy and like people's failure to kind of understand that and understand the impact that it that it has so when i first came back to ohio and i was doing a lot of organizing in you know youngstown and uh there was a federal program called the neighborhood stabilization program that was meant to stabilize communities who'd been impacted by the foreclosure crisis and we were uh, youngstown was was one of many cities in ohio that was a recipient of that money and there was a requirement in that program they had to spend a third of the money on low income housing and Youngstown, you know, one has a 30% poverty rate. That's one of the most segregated cities in, in America. And it's also a city that used to have 180,000 people and now has 60,000 people. So it's one of the fastest dying cities has been one of the fastest dying cities in America as well. So, and they wanted us to spend 30% of the money on low income housing, which we were like, listen, that, you know, you can buy a house on eBay in Youngstown for $15,000. Like we don't need to spend 30% of this, like whatever it was like $3 million or something like 30% of this money on low income housing. All that's going to do is further increase the level of poverty in Youngstown. And it's actually further going to add to problems with racial segregation and so forth. So, so we were, and then, you know, I had these colleagues that I had worked with in Chicago and they, when we were at a national meeting, we were advocating against this. We're advocating it to be changed for, you know, Youngstown. And they were like, Oh, we're so sad to see you Kirk that you've like flipped. And now you're for gentrifying, you know, communities and you're for gentrifying Youngstown. You're going to push poor, you know, like you're trying to push poor people out of Youngstown. And I was like, I was like, no, that's not what's happening. All right. Like that is not what's happening in Youngstown. I'm like, you're, you're putting like a lens of what, what's happening in Chicago, which is a strong market city where yes, you should spend a third of the money on, or if you're in New York or San Francisco or Seattle, or let me list any of the cities that are I was like, but that's not what's happened. So I think there, there, there are these very significant regional 
dynamics, economic dynamics, cultural dynamics that are not well understood across the progressive movement. And people from a particular region or a city tend to put that lens onto other people's, you know, and we, ac- we actually lost that argument in part because we met, we had met with Sean Donovan, who was the head of HUD at the time under the Obama administration. And like, he's from New York. And like, we were trying to convince him that it was bad policy, what he was doing. And it's like, we could, I mean, we did not convince him. We did not get a waiver, but like, you know, and I think that's the, you know, part of it's like, well, why do, why do people in rural communities um, that don't have any immigrants, like, why are they so upset about immigration? Why are they so afraid? Like, well, you know, part of it is because if you live in an older industrial town where, you know, 30 years ago, like you're in Youngstown and 30 years ago, everybody had a good paying job at the steel plant with Ben. And now like, not only that is that job gone and you have a $15 an hour job with, you know, no benefits um, and your neighborhood used to have, used to be full is now like 50% of how many people who used to be there, every other house is abandoned or a vacant lot. And like, you're trying to tell that person, Hey, it's a great idea to have increased immigration. Well, not from the, you have to understand from their perspective, it's like they've only seen decades of decline, decades of you know scarcity and pressure on their their economic situation. So it's like, yeah, they can't. It's hard for them to see how having immigrants is going to help the economy or not going to be competitive with their with their job because they haven't lived in a place like Chicago and you know in Chicago. I mean, the story of Chicago in the 90s and 2000s was it would have lost population if it hadn't have had immigration in my, you know, into the city. So it's a booming strong market city as a result of immigrants. Um, that's why your house is worth X amount of money in Chicago. So I think, I think there are those significant contextual differences in the places that we're organizing are so important in terms of creating and being innovative and thoughtful about using different kinds of organizing models that fit the context that you're in. And then also like, you know, I mean, again, just doing good organizing where you're really listening to and being, and the organization is being led by the people it's organizing um, around the solutions to the, the problems that those communities face. Thank you for that. I, it's really helpful to kind of contextualize it. And um, I'm definitely going to be sharing this episode with my students, by the way. <laughs> so uh, I know that you've transitioned to some other projects. Um, and one of those projects is the Battleground, um, which is a Mexican restaurant and bar in Kent, Ohio. Can you tell us a little bit about that move and what you're doing? And by the way, I'm also going to plug that the last the last workshop, in-person workshop we were able to do before COVID um, shut everything down, um, we took our speaker there, and it's fantastic. Oh, so. You did? <laughs> yes. Awesome. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, so essentially we, you know, when I left the Ohio Organizing Collaborative, we started four companies, only one of them, which I actually run, and I actually don't run the battleground. That is run by my wife, Rosie, who is like the, all the uh, kind of imagination around that that design and space and as, as really hers. Um, but those, so those four companies are the first is the battleground, which is a um, Mexican kitchen and tap room and kind of houses are the social justice beer project, which I'll tell you more about in a second. The second company is a consulting co-op that does 
kind of a whole bunch of things. It does a lot of philanthropic and donor advising. It does strategic kind of campaign help. And then it's, yeah, it's, it's like a, all kind of different, like we're going to supporting like some green new deal strategy nationally and some other stuff. And that's the thing that I'm actually responsible for. Um, Then the third company is a, uh, a field vendor, which essentially does large scale um, voter registration, signature collection for ballot initiatives, get out the vote work, um, also work on candidate campaigns. Uh, and that's run by a woman in Cincinnati. Her name is Kizela. Um, and then last but not least is a returning citizen owned and operated um, printing company that does like hats and t-shirts and swags. And that's run by uh, a guy named Fred Ward who uh, runs out of a community center in Cleveland. So those are kind of the four, the four companies. The um, Yeah, the battleground, uh, probably the only person who's ever been involved in a restaurant who people are like, well, have you? is this something you've like dreamed of all your life that you're planning on working on? I'm like, like, no. In fact, if you would have told me like two years ago that I'd be involved in like running a restaurant, I'd be, I'd say like, what? I'd like, I don't think that's like, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but, uh, it has happened. So, um, and really happened kind of in the, with the confluence of, um, buying this, uh, building in a neighborhood in Kent on the South end of Kent, which is a kind of has a rich, history and um uh uh, as a diverse neighborhood in the city of kent and then it kind of came with it it was like kind of two we have our offices for all those companies are kind of on the second floor and then on the on the bottom floor was that old kind of neighborhood bar that had been there for since the 50s um and we kind of thought a lot of ideas but one of the reasons it was attractive for us to to do that was we'd have this social justice beer project um that we've been working on for a long time, um, which is uh, kind of one of the ideas that we came up with um, at the Ohio Organizing Collaborative of like, hey, well, this would be a, this would be a fun idea. Like, what if? And one of our organizers actually went on to start a brewery, and like this is before he started his brewery, and we were talking at a staff retreat, and we were like, yeah, we could. What if we had social justice craft beer, and then you could have an, a, an election day IPA, and the money could go fund voter registration and redistricting? Or what if we had a, um, uh, you know, something that supported the campaign to raise the minimum wage? And, and it was um, it was really that kind of crazy conversation over. Well, I think we were drinking. I think we were drinking beer at the time, and then it kind of like stuck and got traction and and the more people that we talked to about it the more it kind of you know like we thought like hey maybe this is a good idea maybe we should try to figure this you know kind of figure this out so when we um and that's the battleground i mean the name actually comes from like the nod to ohio being a battleground state so the initial idea was like well we know we want to have this like tap room and we want to do the social justice beer project. We want to donate the proceeds of the beer sales to different organizations. So now there's actually seven social justice beers on tap. So there is a, an actual an election day IPA. There is a Cise Puede, which is a lager, which supports immigration reform. There is a dark, uh, dark money milk stout, which is about money in politics. There's a people over profits Pilsner, which is climate change. There's, um, a Cherry Street Cream Ale, which actually supports local neighborhood um, efforts. And then finally, there's a Dog Whistle Hazy IPA, which is about uh, the use of race and class in political messaging and narrative work. Um, and, uh, 
Yeah. So that, so we knew we wanted to do that. I mean, um, and we also kind of thought this would be a great way to kind of test that idea. In the long term, we're just in the process of kind of launching what the original plan was for the beer project, which is to be a membership subscription program where um, every month you actually get like a case of social justice beer in the mail that comes that says like, here's the organization and the cause that it supports. And, um, and we're about to actually launch that. I think next week we'll be able to ship and mail membership um, packages of beer to people in, in three States initially. Um, and, but we're still kind of like building that out. And then, um, and then we actually looked for a restaurant partner, like someone to kind of like um, run through the restaurant. And we, we tried to recruit a lot of people to do that um, and had no success in part because the, when we came and showed people the space, it was a pretty, rundown space so people were like yeah i don't know i mean i don't think so you know like this is i'm the or uh and then my wife um well uh i say that she like took over and she's and her her version is like she saved the project saved which is which is the true version um and she uh she's like well when we we lived in chicago when we lived in chicago before i met her she worked at one of the um uh, best rated Mexican restaurants in the entire country. It was a very high end Mexican restaurant in downtown Chicago. And she's like, I, you know, I'm going to get that chef. I'm going to recruit that chef to come here and like design the menu and, and help set up this you know, restaurant. And I was like, that'll never happen. Like one, he'll never come to Kent. And two, like, I don't know how you ever like afford that. And, but uh, she not only convinced him, but he came in part because he really liked the idea of the social justice tap room. And then along, he brought with him um, uh, a chef who had been worked with him for 20 years from Chicago who moved here to Kent to be the chef here. And then she designed kind of the space and kind of all of, all of that. And yeah, so that's how the tap room and kitchen came to be. And it's really kind of fascinating. I mean, you know, I mean, I think, well, first, once, once we get over COVID too, but even during COVID, it's like, the amount of people who either come and eat outside on the patio or who come and order takeout. It's like, it's all of those are kind of opportunities to talk to people about social, racial, and economic justice and the, to use the beer project to both generate revenue for those organizations and causes, but also as kind of a vehicle for popular education. I have to say now as somebody who grew up on Mexican food coming from Arizona and also loves craft beer, it, the place is fabulous. So <laughs> you've have you got been, have you come? Have you come? Yeah. You yes. have, yeah. Yes. Awesome. So it's, it's fabulous. I can't, uh, I encourage our listeners if you're local to go. So yeah, I mean, we, we often get outside, like there's like probably in like another couple of weeks of being able to sit outside and eat. <laughs> so it's like before we're all like quarantined again in our homes. So it's like, this is, this is it. I mean, like, this is your chance to like, you know, if you're to get outside one more time, you know, I'd be outside before, before the Ohio winter. Go now people. <laughs> so besides having so much fun uh, with, with your current projects, um, what keeps you motivated to do this? Because you've been doing this, as you said, for, for decades now. I mean, that's a lot of community organizing. And I can imagine that at times it feels like maybe change isn't happening fast enough. And it, it you must have to have some sort of external or internal motivation that keeps you going. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would say, I think generally, you know, in in life, it's like, hopefully we're all fortunate enough to find the things that are 
to do in our work life that are not really work, but they're kind of, they're a calling that kind of really fulfills our, our heart, our hopes, our dreams, our imagination. And I, I think that, you know, for each of us, it's like that is a distinct and unique calling. And for some of us, that's teaching. And for some of us, that's cooking. And for some of us, that's organizing. And for some, you know, and yeah, and I felt like generally like this kind of work, organizing work has just been incredibly fulfilling. And I feel like very blessed and privileged to be able to do it, to even to be able to participate in other people's lives in a in a meaningful way when they open your door and, and allow you to, um, uh, you know, essentially mess with their, you know, with their, with their life. And, and, uh, and I think that's a huge, um, responsibility and opportunity and, um, yeah. And I, I, and I've just really enjoyed it. I mean, I think the other piece of, um, hopefully what we're all doing in our work is that, yeah, 20% of any job is going to kind of suck. You know I mean? Like there's just, you got to grind through it and it's like, you're not going to enjoy it, but hopefully 80% of it is like, you wake up and you're like, yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to do this work. Um, I want to, and I'm excited about it and it's energy. And I think when it starts to, and I think that's when I, you know, why I kind of like shifted my role in, in kind of organizing and social movement work was that I started to wake up and be like, yeah, I don't, I'm not enjoying like 80% of the work that I, cause that's so much of this work is doing kind of nonprofit fundraising. It's like, I was like, you know, it's now it's time for me to try to shift, you know, shift somewhat so that I get back to that ratio. Um, and then I would also just say that I really believe organizing works. I mean, I don't think there's any shortcut to like addressing the, the, the deep crisis that we have in our democracy other than getting people to like, vote and participate and educate and, and work on the issues that they care about and, and meet with other people and understand other people's stories and their own story in the context of what it means to have a public life and what it means to be a part of this country and this democracy. There's no shortcut to that. I mean, yes, social media can accelerate or support some of that, but ultimately it's like, we're not, we're going to save this democracy through face-to-face work person to person transformative storytelling and work on campaigns and issues that people care about and can bring people to bring people together across difference so you you touched on two things that lead me right into what i want to ask you about and one is that um i think that the growing democracy project for me i don't want to speak on casey's behalf but we've had this conversation a few times that it's um it is that that part that it's the thing that keeps us inspired. It's the, this podcast in particular has what has been an amazing thing to be able to do and amplify people's voices and listen to people's stories. Um, very much that storytelling piece. Um, so yeah, we, we completely understand finding those things that just make you want to wake up in the morning and do work. Um, and so for us, growing democracy is very much that, that, that process. And from in part of the project um, that we try to do, um, especially for this series, um, is ask people why civic and political engagement is important. And I think from kind of the conversations we've been having, it's pretty obvious that you think civic and political engagement is important. So I want to ask, like, what is what do you see as the future for political and civic engagement? What are the kind of the challenges to different approaches? And, and you know, what are alternatives and complements to, to mobilizing and organizing people? 
that's a, that was a long question. <laughs> there are lots of different parts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, so I would say, what do I see is, is the future. I mean, I think we have a lot of work to do to rebuild um, democratic institutions and kind of intermediary or um, mediating institutions. It's like, you know, I think there was a period of time in kind of American democracy, you know, whatever, 50, 60, 70 years ago, where we, we had a ton of very strong kind of mediating institutions, whether that would be, um, you know, the Kiwanis or the local democratic party or the, you know, uh, certainly religious institutions. It's like all of which have seen, significant decline in the last, you know, several decades, a la the kind of stuff documented in bowling alone or those kind of were. And I think, I think there's a lot of, you know, truth to that. I think that the challenge before us is like, what are the new kind of media mediating institutions that are going to emerge in their place? And what kind of community and civic organizations need to be built and, and sustained? And what does it look like for, you know, Black Lives Matter to become a durable long-term organization and entity that, that has the capacity to uh, not just shift the narrative, but fundamentally shift policy and, you know, the way in which public safety is, uh, funded and and executed, et cetera. I mean, I think, um, you know, labor unions are also in a period of, have been in a period of significant decline. It's like, okay, well, what is the next, what's the next version of labor unions and worker organizing and um, uh, how similar does that look to what we have now and what is going to be new and, and, but certainly like workers need organized. <laughs> and so, but I think there's lots of questions around what that, you know, what that looks like. Yeah. And I think it's the same. I mean, so I, and I think that will be, a, you know, a mix of like online and offline and, and there will be different kinds of the way in which those institutions are, are shaped. I think will, um, will also, it's also going to be, you know, it's also going to be changing into the future, but, but ultimately it's like, we're not, that is going to how that's the path to how we're going to govern is through those kind of, um, through those kind of institutions and organizations. It's not going to be by um, random activists, you know, online or offline. Um, that's not how power is built or sustained, I think, as a basic principle of democracy. Yeah. And then obviously it's like, I mean, the, the big question of like, why is civic or political engagement important? I mean, I, I think there would be many, re many, many things to like take from the current, context and climate to, to point to as how, whether it's local state or national government is going to impact your life on a day-to-day, -day, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. And yeah. And honestly, it's like, you know, those institutions, government institutions only work well to the extent that we invest in them and like elect people to those institutions that we want to shape. And and get in the get in the mix of like you know whether it's participatory budgeting or kind of there's lots of other mechanisms too for how governance actually should and could happen versus you know um, a set of corporations and a set of law lawmakers in a dark room figuring out how they can bilk a billion dollars of tax money from Ohioans you know what for a for a mere fee of a sixty million dollar bribe you know to do it. I mean that 
that is governing. And that is the way that I'm, mean, it's like, but it's overdue for like regular people to actually be the ones like not in a dark room, but in a room saying like, yeah, we do need a billion dollars to fix public education in, in Ohio or what have you. And like, here's the path to do that. And, you know, hopefully there's a $60 million bribe involved in that, but like that, uh, yeah, there's clearly like the kind of resources If we have a, more than a billion dollars to bail out a couple nuclear power plants. Um, we certainly have a billion dollars to invest in, education or, um, uh, you know, criminal justice reform or, you know, um, mental health services or whatever else is, is deeply needed in communities. So, yeah, I mean, I think we have to, you know, bring people into a process where people see politics as a, a part of their daily lives and a meaningful part of their lives. Kirk, I just, we, we can't thank you enough for coming on today. And uh, I think, I, I, and maybe I say this to all of our guests, but you echo so many of the things that we've been talking about that it was such a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm just totally going to echo what Casey said and um, that maybe it's that we just keep pe- picking people. <laughs> We're the people we want to hear from. Um, so thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure to be a part of it. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Gold Knox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about political and civic engagement.